0: Welcome to STEAM Part where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Kyra Malay. Kyra is a cybersecurity GRC specialist who takes a pragmatic approach to governance, risk and compliance in cybersecurity and works with organizations in various sectors on their path to security maturity. Join us as we talk about Kyra's indirect journey to cybersecurity and what cybersecurity involves from policy to supply chain security and social engineering. Morning, Cairo. Thank you so much for joining me on Steam Power. It's wonderful to have you speaking with me today about all the stuff that you're doing in
1: cybersecurity. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Excellent. Okay, so
0: we'll get right into it. So um, you started out in social sciences, studying politics and international relations before you shifted into tech. But what motivated you to pursue social sciences?
1: Uh, it was actually something that I always had a bit of an interest in. You know, when I was a kid, I was always reading um history books and stuff instead of, you know, the more normal kid stuff. Um, When I was in high school, I did uh, extra history classes as electives uh, because I was a bit of a nerd. So I was kind of deep into the like the ancient Greek and the Roman and Egyptian history and all of that. Um, And then I also did some modern history and and political studies and that kind of thing. So when I was heading into university, I had like a vague idea that I wanted to be a diplomat (laughs) Uh, but it wasn't really set in stone. I was just like, this is the thing that I want to study. I wanted to do um, politics and international relations, and I did a a second major in history as well. Um, And that was just kind of what I wanted to read about and what I wanted to think about. So that's why I I went into it. I wasn't really planning a specific career path beyond that. Um, And it was just stuff that I really enjoyed kind of digging into and pulling things apart.
0: That's very, very cool. So, you know, did you have an idea about how you were going to become a diplomat or was that just?
1: Not a very structured <laughs> idea. I think I thought I was like, I'll just study this uh, and then I'll apply to some grad programs in Canberra and obviously they'll take me because I'm fantastic. Um, <laughs> spoiler, they, they didn't take me because uh, I only had an <laughs> undergrad degree and I didn't speak a second language, which is probably something I should have thought about. Yeah, um, that but helped. I ended up doing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up doing a lot of different things. Um, I worked in hospitality or through university to support myself. Um, and then I kind of had a choice between doing further studies. So I was looking at doing a master's or a PhD. Uh, but it was kind of at the point where I was like, I can't really afford to keep studying. So, uh, I went into a full-time job in hospitality, managing cafes, uh, after university. And from there I ended up pivoting into tech. So a bit of a a curly journey.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That is a curly journey. But so what made you kind of decide that tech was where you wanted to be?
1: I was actually looking to get out of hospitality because I didn't want to work weekends anymore. (laughs) Um, And I was really tired of being on my feet for about 12 hours a day. Um, So I ended up talking to some people that I knew uh, who were working at a local internet service provider here in Perth. Uh, and they were looking to add people to their tech support teams who had quite good communication and customer service skills, and they were willing to teach the tech side of things. Uh, and that seemed like a pretty good deal to me because i have been working with people for quite a while. I was pretty good at handling complaints and, and talking to customers and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I applied and they ended up uh, getting me into one of their intakes and I learned all the you know, turning it off and turning it back on again side of things (laughs) while being able to kind of hold a conversation with customers on the phone. So that was kind of where I first started diving into the tech side of things.
0: So from there, getting into cybersecurity. So what's that path like?
1: (laughs) Again, it was a bit of a happy accident actually. So I was working for the internet service provider. I moved through a bunch of different specialized teams. Uh, so I did some level two support and a few different technologies. I ended up handling escalated customer complaints for about nine months, which was not a fun time. And after no. nine months I was like, I need to do something different. Uh, so I moved into our actual retail store uh, and I was helping to manage that. Uh, And at the same time that I was doing that, we had a new cybersecurity manager come on board who was working towards PCI DSS compliance, so the payment card industry standards. Uh, And he needed us to make some changes in how we had our retail store set up. He uh, evidently had approached... The manager of the actual store a few times and not gotten much of a response so he ended up coming to me as the second in command and was like i need to make some changes to make us in alignment with this standard uh can you help and i was like sure what do you need me to do and he sent me the four or five requirements from the standard Uh, and a week later i came back to him and i was like cool here's how we have um introduced new processes to make sure we're in alignment with it this is what it's going to look like ongoing. We'll have these regular checks, uh, all, all sorted out. Let's, let's go. And cool. he was like, what, what the hell? This took a week. Like why did not I you three months ago? I was like, I don't know. Uh, so, uh, a couple of months down the track when he was actually looking to expand his team, uh, so we could do more work, uh, in terms of aligning with standards. Like ISO 27001, uh, I was one of the people that kind of put my hand up because, I don't know if people who haven't worked in call centers probably don't know this, but everyone's goal is to get out of of the call center center to get into one of the corporate (laughs) roles. So I was like, yeah, cool. I'll do that. Um, And I I actually looked at the job description and I wasn't going to apply because I was like, I can't do this. This, I'm not technical enough. I'm not going to be able to do the role. Uh, And one of my coworkers at the time pulled me up and said, Hey, stop. Like, there's one thing on this list that you don't know how to do, which is scanning for security vulnerabilities. And he's like, but everything else that's on there, you can do, you've been doing and you can do it. So I ended up putting in my application about an hour before they closed (laughs) on the last day. And because, you know, I'd worked with the security manager before uh, and he he knew the kind of things that I could do, uh, he ended up giving me the role. And that was where I ended up in cybersecurity. It was, not a, again not a planned career progression and I yeah. honestly hadn't even known that it existed as a thing before that. Um, I dabbled in a lot of regulatory stuff and privacy um, areas but this was kind of my first foray into actual cybersecurity. so yeah that was it. it to me it was kind of a lesson in how helping people and you know just trying to do what needs to be done as part of your role can actually help you progress. Because if I hadn't picked up that thing from our cybersecurity manager and said, yeah, I can do that and let's get on with it, then I probably wouldn't have ended up in that role.
0: Yeah. And that's amazing. And you know, people do forget that a lot of the stuff to do with cybersecurity is about compliance at so many different levels. And you know, it, it's, it's not actually an unnatural progression to go from Regulatory and compliance into cybersecurity because it's still two sides of the same coin. You're just heading more to the technical side of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's very spe- there's some specific, you know, regulatory re- and compliance requirements for cybersecurity. You know, we have our own standards that we need to implement. For me, I think the most important part with those kinds of compliance and regulatory activities is to actually make sure you're approaching them in a pragmatic way. I'm I'm not a big fan of kind of the checkbox approach where you know the standard says you do xyz so we're going to do xyz to the absolute letter because Mm -hmm. that might not actually make sense for your business you know i've seen a lot of organizations who you know one of the some of the controls in iso 27001 the the standard for an information security management system specify that you should have you know a secure development life cycle Uh, And then organizations who don't actually do any in-house development will then sit down and write a standard of how to do secure development when they could actually just go, this doesn't actually apply to us, so we're not going to do it. Like actually kind of putting that lens over and going, well, what do we as a business do and what's actually going to make the most impact? You know, writing a policy that you don't need, that no one's going to read, that's just going to sit there, to me, doesn't really accomplish anything
0: no that exactly and you know you a lot of people forget that because as soon as anyone says process it's like oh right so we need to follow everything to the letter it's like yeah but context
1: <laughs> yeah and part of that is you know you shouldn't write a process and then roll it out and expect people to follow it you should look at what people are actually doing yeah and use that to inform the process and you know you can make tweaks because you know there might be some things that people should be doing that they're not but if you've got too big of a gap between what your process says and what your people are doing, there's probably an issue with the process as <laughs> well as what people are doing. It's not just the people who are wrong.
0: Exactly. So it's all about the change management aspect as well, because, you know, you're mm. changing the way that people do things, you're changing the way that they approach what they're doing.
1: Yeah. And the, the way that's communicated, I think, is really important. Uh, it's one of the things that I've always been quite passionate about in my roles is you know, kind of taking it to the people, you know, I don't want to be sitting up in some ivory tower telling people what to do so that they can be more secure because they know their jobs better than I do most of the time. Um, And I'd rather work with them to work out what they're doing, why they are doing it that way? Are there improvements that we can make or is there potentially, you know, an issue with the process or the policy? And, And maybe we should put that risk lens over it and go, well, Is this actually that big of a deal? Uh, And if it is obviously make changes, if it's not, and you're happy for things to keep going the way that they are, then adjust your policy, adjust your process. Don't just, you know, take out the stick and start whacking people. It's (laughs) about kind of taking them on the journey rather than dictating what other people should be doing.
0: Exactly. That's yeah, exactly how you're supposed to handle all process management. (laughs)
1: Well, in an ideal world, yeah,
0: (laughs) in an ideal world, (laughs) (laughs) so what does governance risk and compliance involve in the space that you're in?
1: So in cybersecurity, it, it covers a, a lot of different things. So I guess it, it's interesting because people think of cybersecurity and they kind of immediately go to the hackers. Um, and, you know, we, we would normally, you know, on the, the good side, we call them penetration testers. Um, and there, there are a lot of them and they do do a lot of valuable work. Uh, But there's so much more going on in cybersecurity than than just the penetration testers. So um, there's also, you know, a lot of actual defense work going on, sysadmins, network admins uh, who are kind of on the front lines. We've got incident response uh, and a whole plethora of other things. And also my area, which is governance, risk and compliance. So we're usually the people who are working. uh, So the governance is, is a lot of the policy and process work. So we'll be looking at defining information security policies. Uh, There's usually also data classification because obviously you can't protect things if you don't actually know the level of value that they have and therefore how much protection that they need. Uh, And, you know, kind of defining a lot of those policies and processes and then doing the, the continuous improvement piece. So once we've defined it, actually, rolling out those policies and processes to people, making sure they're implemented properly, uh, and then doing a review to make sure they are updated as you go along, as things change, as technology changes. Uh, risk uh, is my personal favourite section. Um, <laughs> so risk, risk management is more where we kind of, we look at threat modelling and we actually start looking at what you actually need to be concerned about. Like how do you prioritise the, the security work that you need to do? Mm -hmm. Uh, And how do you kind of put that into a to-do list and and track it? So risk is all about looking at everything that can go wrong, working out how likely is it to go wrong? What's actually going to happen if it does go wrong? uh, And then using all that information to come up with plans so that you can fix those risks. You can uh, avoid them completely by stopping doing the thing that would lead (laughs) to that. Uh, You can outsource that risk to someone else. You know, you can take your you know, internal service desk and outsource it to someone else and then they're carrying the risk rather than you are. Uh, Or you can choose to accept the risk, um, which is generally not the best thing that we want to hear. (laughs) Someone going, that's fine, we'll just go with it. Um, But it's it's also, (laughs) exactly. Uh, But the thing thing to remember is that, you know, organizations have a business to run. They're not just there to do security work 24 seven. You know, there needs to be uh, a particular point where maybe something is too expensive and it's not actually worth the problem. It's it's the whole question of, you know, putting a $10 lock on a $5 bite. Is it yeah. actually <laughs> making sense or not? Uh, and that's the risk lens, which is why I, I really like it. It's got more of those grey areas uh, where you can actually start asking pointy questions about why you want to do something and, and why is it a concern. Uh, and then we have the compliance portion, which is usually based around particular standards or regulatory requirements, there's a lot of legal um, feed into that. So, you know, in Australia, we have the Privacy Act. Uh, in you know Europe, there's GDPR. Um, all of those kinds of things will feed into the compliance side of things. So uh, whichever standard you choose, you have to actually make sure you're meeting all of those requirements. Usually, you'll be the one doing internal audits. Uh, and then also, you have your external audits where an independent third party will come in and go through everything and and check to make sure that you're actually doing the things that you say that you're doing. So those are kind of the the three areas, you know, we refer to it as GRC, um, governance, risk, and compliance in cybersecurity. And a lot of these areas, they do have similar areas in like other parts of the business. So a lot of organizations will have an overarching risk team if they're a big enough organization uh, and they'll look at all business risks, Uh, as well as, you know, environmental risks and and all of those kinds of things. Whereas we tend to specialise specifically into the cybersecurity stuff. You know, the concepts are the same, but we're looking at a a subtext, a subset of everything uh, and getting a little bit more specialised in terms of, you know, what those threats look like and what the actual remediations would be to fix them.
0: That's cool. So I've always wondered this. With the outsourcing of risk, especially when people now talk about how um, businesses and how they have to take responsibility for every step of the supply chain. But when you are starting to have to do things like outsourcing your risk or delegating some of that to um, other areas and the onus is on us to ensure that they will comply. But where does that line kind of come in for the, I guess, the responsibility to the business owner?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky question and supply chain security, I mean, it's, it's a big thing at the moment because, you know, there's been a lot of quite high profile uh, compromises of, you know, tool providers, uh, SolarWinds being probably the, the yes. most, re- most famous <laughs> one, uh, which kind of scared the pants off a lot of people. Um, and supply chain security is not an easy thing to do because, you know, when you're talking about a supply chain, you really only have a relationship with like one chain link forward and one chain link back. Um, but all of your providers and all of your customers have their own suppliers and providers and customers as well, Uh, and that can have an impact on you. So usually a a lot of the time this will be addressed through contracts. Um, So you'll have contractual clauses that require your suppliers to do due diligence on their suppliers um, and you require them to provide you with documentation on an annual basis to show that they're doing that and to show that they're doing all of their cybersecurity stuff that they should be as well. Um, The tricky part of that is, you know, you then have to make sure you're actually enforcing it, um, which I think is where a lot of people actually fall down because they, they sign the contract off they go and they never really think about it again. Um, So supply chain security is one of those really tricky areas where there's a lot going on um and you know in previous roles I've had to do risk assessments on you know our provider is providing us with this service they've outsourced part of that to someone else so you're actually it's not even third party risk you're looking at fourth or fifth party risk yeah uh and the tricky part is I can't really approach that supplier's supplier and go hey give me all of your security documentation (laughs) because The I relationship's no not them. with, yeah. There's no relationship. Um, So it does get very tricky and mostly it's making sure you have those relationships with your own suppliers and making sure that you know that they're doing it right. And then it's kind of a ripple effect. If everyone's doing it for all <laughs> of their suppliers and all of their customers, hopefully everyone ends up getting covered. It's not always yeah. the case. Uh, And a lot of the time internally, you can have, you know, some other mitigating controls in place to, you know, reduce the impact if there was, you know, one of your suppliers getting compromised. So there's kind of that twofold way to manage it is, you know, internally have some stuff in place that will kind of cover you if something goes (laughs) wrong with that supplier and then make sure you're working with that supplier so that, you know, you know that they're doing the right thing as best they can. Um, Yeah. And the thing to remember is, you know, an organization or a supplier or whatever getting compromised, it doesn't mean that they were doing the wrong thing. It, it could just mean that, you know, something got missed or the uh, particular threat actor or the attacker or whatever you want to call them just had more capacity. And, you know, I mean, we often say in cybersecurity, if there's a nation state actor that wants to compromise you, they pretty much will because they have the time and the resources to sit there and just find like one tiny chink in the armor. Um, yeah. So really most of us are just trying not to be the low-hanging fruit. We just <laughs> wanna make it that little bit more inconvenient for an attacker to compromise yep. you and just hope that they go for someone else. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's if someone has that much time and money and energy, they probably are going to compromise you. Um, yep. And that's just kind of a fact of life. We call it in cybersecurity, assume breach. Um, basically everyone should assume that they've been breached at some point and you should act accordingly. So it's probably a little bit of a negative (laughs) worldview, but you know, for, for a lot of us, it it just kind of means, you know, we just have to keep fighting the good fight day and night. And, you know, we may end up on the losing side at some point and all we can do is like the best that we can do.
0: Yeah. it's like that expression, right? The bumper sticker, trust in the universe, but lock your car.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's basically what we're doing.
0: Yeah, Distrusting the universe, <laughs> I think,
1: but locking <laughs> the car anyway. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, that applies in so many other aspects of, you know, just general living in society. But, you know, yeah. it's, it's not just big businesses. It's talking about our own personal security, our own personal electronics and devices stuff like that, and just being aware that we are vulnerable in so many different ways. And just trying, yeah, trying not to be the low-hanging fruit. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's like some of the really simple stuff, you know, like I think, uh, I don't quote me on the exact, uh, statistics, but I think Microsoft did a study and they found that, you know, like 94% or something like a very high percentage, uh, of, uh, accounts uh, of account compromises were prevented by multi-factor authentication. Yeah. Um, so just ena- like enabling that one thing on your personal device can put yeah. you so far ahead of the pack in terms of, getting compromised that, you know, it is a little bit inconvenient. I often will get annoyed when I'm, I'll put, I'm very easily distracted. So I'll put my phone (laughs) in a separate room and I'll sit down on my laptop and I'm like, I'm going to do some work. And then I go to log into something and it goes, approve the login on your device. And I'm like, oh, now I have to go get my phone. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, five seconds of inconvenience to get up and go get it from the other room is way less effort than if my account actually got compromised and then I had to deal with being locked out and my account being used to do goodness knows what. Um, exactly. So, you know, a very small inconvenience for <laughs> a very big gain in terms of, you know, online safety and privacy. So it's kind yeah. of the, the way I approach that is, you know, I think a lot of cybersecurity people will sit here and say... You should have multi-factor authentication on everything. You should have a password manager. You should do this. You should do that. Uh, And none of, no one really acknowledges the fact that yeah, sometimes it sucks a little bit, but (laughs) it's so much better than the alternative. Like let's just acknowledge that cybersecurity isn't always easy and it isn't always convenient. There's definitely ways that we can do better with those kinds of things, but, you know, a little bit of inconvenience now is probably better than a lot of inconvenience down the track. So that's kind of how I balance it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we've all probably known at least a couple of people who've had security breaches and it's just completely turned your life upside down for weeks, if not months. It's like, well... You know, you, you, could, you could just mitigate some of that by adding the extra bit of inconvenience and then you don't have to worry about people stealing your credit card and, you know, locking you out of your accounts.
1: Yeah, I did a, a yeah. very long time back in my call center days, I was dealing with a particular customer who, uh, they'd had their credit card uh, compromised and so they needed to update their credit card details. Uh, and the way they went about that was they emailed to the support email saying, I'm currently traveling through China. I don't have mobile reception, but I've managed to get on the free Wi-Fi. I need to update my credit card details. Here's my credit card number and expiry date. And I was like, wow, it's shocking that your credit card got compromised uh, if you're just sending the details in plain text through email on free Wi-Fi in China. Um, but, you know, she didn't know any better. And that that yeah. was an opportunity to to talk through what the actual issues are with, with what she was doing. And, you know, we can do things like, you know, extend invoices so that your, uh, account isn't charged in the meantime, and then you can update your credit card once you're back somewhere. in Australia <laughs> on the phone in a bit more of a secure manner. So, you know, a lot of the times we'll, we'll look at those kinds of things and we'll go, man, what an idiot. Why would they do that? But they weren't yeah, trying yeah. to, to, you know, compromise their credit card. They just didn't want their account to get suspended. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can't really blame them because no one's ever sat them down and talked through why that might have been a bad idea. So that's an opportunity to actually do that. You know, I mean, I personally have just started learning to knit uh, I was <laughs> in my knitting class last week. Uh, And we started up a conversation about multi-factor authentication I'm that (laughs) annoying person who will bring it up in conversation. Um, But, you know, a lot of the people in that class were, you know, a bit older. They didn't really think about these kinds of things and the technology isn't something that they, you know, have kept up with over the years because 70 years of technology is just too much, you know, I'm starting to get tired and I'm only 33. (laughs) Um, So you're just having that conversation to actually explain why something is a good idea and what it will actually help prevent to stop is really great. And I think more people need to take the time to do that both, you know, in professional environments and in personal environments as well. Cause it's, it's all the same concepts. It's just how we actually apply them.
0: It is. Yeah. Pretty much just being a bit more aware about what we're doing and where we're doing it. And yeah, I, I tend to have those conversations periodically with my clients and yeah, in my freelance work. I get given a lot of passwords. Something really rubbish. And it's like, please change your passwords for the love of God. Look, I'm going to change it for you and make it something really annoying if you don't do it for yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've now the it's not been that long since the seasons changed. So we're now into yeah. autumn twenty twenty one as the new password of choice. <laughs> um, or, or spring 2021, if you're in the Northern hemisphere. So really being in the Southern hemisphere is a security control. Cause it means you know, our, our default passwords are going to be slightly different.
0: Exactly. It's gonna be much easier. I remember seeing, <laughs> um, statistically the most common password is monkey. I don't know if that's still the case I've now that, that everyone knows that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've seen, um, like they, every year they'll publish lists of like the most common passwords. Uh, and there's always, like, there's usually dragon up there somewhere. Yes. And, yeah. and I've seen people try to do, like, psychoanalysis as to why people would choose <laughs> dragon. I was talking about how, like, oh, you know, a dragon is, like, a strong, powerful beast and people use it because they think that strength will protect their account. And I was like, maybe they just watch a lot of Game of Thrones, like, <laughs> or, or they think dragons are cool. Like, I think we might be overthinking it.
0: Yeah, I think kind of Arkham's razor. I think we need to kind of, you know, just accept that maybe they just really like dragons because they're cool or they just like monkey because monkeys are silly and who would think of monkey?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my favorite is using positive affirmations as a password. So, (laughs) you know, you get onto your work computer and you type in, you are doing a great job to log in. (laughs) Uh, It just sets you up for a nice positive day. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Love it just get that mindset it's all very subliminal, right there
1: yeah yeah i think it's great
0: <laughs> that's so cool so getting back on track so with um <laughs> with your background in social sciences how has that informed the work that you do because you mentioned that you know this is a thing that people have brought up in the past about mm. um yeah your entry into this space
1: yeah, I get uh, get asked a lot about it, particularly because you know I've I've worked places and with people who've kind of said, oh, you know, having a bachelor of arts or a bachelor of social science, like it it doesn't actually provide you with anything that's relevant to this job, uh, and they're like, oh, you know, you you'd be better off having a, a bachelor of computing or something like that. Uh, and for me, like I understand that, yeah, I came into the technical field a little bit later. There's a bit of catch up to do there. Um, which is something that I I do. I do a lot of study in my spare time as well, as I think pretty much everyone in tech does to keep on top of everything. Uh, But for me, you know, the the real distinction was, you know, the things that my degree taught me, I actually use every day in my job. You know, there was a real focus on, you know, research and information gathering uh, and being able to pull together information from everywhere to come up with, you know, a cohesive view of a particular topic or something like that. Uh, And then being able to kind of assess the information that you've pulled together. So work out what's reliable and what's not reliable, uh, which is probably a skill that I think a few more people these days need to have. Um, And then being able to work through all of that information to form a particular point of view uh, and actually make an argument of what you think should happen or how you think things should be. Uh, And that's pretty much what I do every day, doing risk assessments and working in governance. You know, it's it's my job to pull together all of the information, look at it, pinpoint some of the things that are wrong and like, you know, find out what the risks actually are, explain why that's actually a concern, you know, what will actually happen if that thing goes wrong. And then actually work through and communicate what we need to do to fix those, how we can do that, how much time it's going to take. Uh, And just being able to communicate that clearly to basically anyone and everyone in an organization. So I'll deal with people from the CEO down to help desk. uh, And I need to be able to communicate with all of those people in the way that they go and understand. You know, a a help desk technician is probably going to want the technical detail step by step of what needs to happen. A CEO is not going to care about what what to click where and that kind of thing. They just want to know. You know, why do I actually bother about this? What benefit is it going to bring me? And it's being able to adjust the information you're providing based on your audience and what they're looking for and being able to understand the best way to present that. Because different people in different teams have different motivations uh, and hooking into those is going to make your life so much easier. Uh, And that's all of the things that I was learning when I was at university. You know, we were studying... All kinds of things, you know. I did a, a unit on uh, Middle Eastern history. Uh, I did units on, you know, the geopolitics of the Asia Pacific region. Um, but all of that information was just around learning those same skills, uh, and those are skills that I use every day. And I think, genuinely, one of the things that cybersecurity as an industry is missing, and this probably goes for tech more broadly as well, is a lot of those communication uh, and, you know, the the psychology of dealing with people and and hooking into motivations. I think we're missing that, particularly in cybersecurity. I mean, if you think about it, cybersecurity as an industry is fairly new uh, Mm -hmm. and we're still fighting for a seat at the table in a lot of organisations. It's just now starting to become a thing that, hey, maybe we should do some of that cyber stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of that's on the people us in the industry for not necessarily communicating what we are actually interested in and why it's important in the best way, because we kind of being in our little tech bubble, we're not necessarily thinking about the the business speak and what the business as a whole is actually trying to do. Uh, And if we don't buy into that, then we're not going to get much sway around why what we're doing is important because we're just going to end up being a a bit of a money sink because cybersecurity doesn't tend to make money. We just tend to spend it. So being able to actually justify that (laughs) is going to get you way further than just being like dollars, please.
0: Yes. Yeah. And because it's such an, it's a part that permeates all aspects of the business. It's just, Mm kind of underneath so you don't realize that everything that you do does involve a lot of these sort of concerns and these kind of considerations so you know you, people take it for granted basically and mm. you know it's yeah it is one of those things where you know people go oh it, it's a thing that just happens
1: yeah and you know just like all good it if it's good you won't even you don't notice, notice. It, it just works uh, but it's when it doesn't work or when, you know, there's something a little bit more annoying that you have to do that people actually start to notice it. Uh, and that's when you need to do the justification piece, right? <laughs> if you're going to make everyone, you know, get the the code off their phone to log into something, you better have a good reason to explain to them. Um, and yeah, there, there is a good reason, but if you can't get that across, you're not going to get the buy-in and people aren't going to want to do it. So that yeah. to me is the most important part is actually getting that buy-in, because otherwise, people will find every way to get around you and to not talk to you. Uh, and the people, you know, I mean, I'm kind of doing this thing which I hate that people in cybersecurity do, which is we talk about ourselves as if we're separate from the business, <laughs> but we we are part of the business. Like that's what we do. Um, but it's kind of like, yeah, if, if you don't get them on board, they're not going to come and talk to you. And you know, these are the all of the users out there in the tech environment they're the ones that are going to see when something goes wrong yeah. um, because you can't have eyes everywhere uh, at all times. So they're the ones that are going to see when something goes wrong. And if they don't come to you and mention it, you're missing a trick. Um, mm. it was one of the things that I liked most uh, when I was in the cybersecurity role uh, at the internet service provider was because I'd come through the call center and I'd worked with a bunch of different people um. People in the call centre would actually come to me with questions about, oh, you know, this customer is called asking about this. I think there's a privacy angle to this or, you know, I think there's an issue. Uh, and I would actually be able to help them through that. Uh, and if they hadn't known me from being in the call centre, they wouldn't have known who to talk to. And they yeah. wouldn't have gotten that guidance. And then they wouldn't be able to share that guidance with other people as well. So just being visible and knowing people is so valuable in a cybersecurity role because you will get that information from the people who are out there doing the stuff that you want done securely, but you're not the yeah. one actually doing it yourself.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, it, it's because they know it's a thing, but they don't know who to address it with. And Yeah. And once they know, they'll
1: ask. Like, it's great.
0: Absolutely. It's fantastic. And yeah, again, because um, coming up from Texas support, because I did that too, and Because you're in that space and you are kind of frontline right there, you, you are aware of those issues. So when you start to move down, there are other areas, you know, your text your, um, customer support friends said, don't forget us when you leave and become all important. But (laughs) they, they know that you're a contact there. They know that you understand what their concerns are and what their experiences are. Mm -hmm. And so you're a lot more approachable in that respect there too, because they know that you understand.
1: Yeah, and, and the upside was because I'd, I'd worked in the, in the call center, I knew kind of all the tricks through the billing systems that we had. <laughs> so I pointed out a few things that I was like, this is maybe not the best way to do that thing because I know how to get around it. <laughs> so just ha- having that inside knowledge is also a little bit valuable. I think, you know, it's really good for people in cybersecurity who are kind of behind the scenes. To really get an understanding of what is happening on the front line, you know, actually buy into what your organization is doing. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've had conversations with people where it's like, you know, you work in the IT department or the cybersecurity department of, you know, a mining company. It's like, do you say that you work in IT or do you say that you work in mining? Um yeah. and a lot of people they won't, they will only identify with the IT part of it. Um, yeah. but you work in both. You need to understand. What everyone else is doing to work out how to support it properly and how to secure exactly. it properly, um, and just kind of getting out there and, and understanding what people are doing is so so valuable.
0: It is absolutely. So yeah, you know, we've we've talked a bit about multifactor authentication, and we've talked about <laughs> security through PCI DSS for payment security, and you know network security. What are some of the other considerations that? you know, businesses need to have in terms of cybersecurity and yeah, just general protection in, ge- in that space.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it all depends on wh- where you actually are. You know, the the guidance for a large organization with a dedicated IT team and a dedicated cybersecurity team is always going to be different to a small business that has 10 people total, Uh, And, you know, the IT setup is done by the owner's son on the weekends when he's got a bit of spare time. Um, So, you know, the, the guidance is always different. I think a lot of the time, we don't focus on the small players, and I think they're the ones that need kind of the most help, because you know, one cybersecurity incident for, yeah, one cybersecurity incident for a small business can knock them out of business completely. I mean, particularly with COVID and everything, you know, profit margins are razor thin, everyone's kind of struggling. So, you know, for those kind of couple of people in a, in a shop kind of operations, I would definitely be looking at, you know, making sure you have multi-factor authentication uh, and just kind of maybe have a password manager to use, Uh, And just kind of be a bit careful with what information you're sending, you know, look at your actual accounts. So make sure your email accounts are particularly, you know, secure because that's probably your main way to do business Uh, and just making sure that that's protected uh, because that will be a relatively, hopefully easy exercise, but it will save a lot of pain. For bigger organisations, it becomes a lot more complex and you kind of need whole programs of work. Uh, And these are the ones that will end up, you know, working with particular standards. So you'll end up aligning to ISO 27001, which is how you set up a whole governance system to manage your cybersecurity. Um, Or you'll have, you know, industry specific ones. So PCI DSS applies to any business that processes credit card payments. Um, There's also one specifically around, you know, operational technology. So that's kind of anything that's doing physical processes. So in manufacturing or mining, where you have you know uh, automated you know robot arms doing stuff or automated drills uh, there's particular standards for that um, and th- those are the ones that the big organizations will tend to gravitate towards and, and kind of set up a whole program um, but for, for the smaller players it's that basic stuff of multi-factor authentication password managers and maybe just you know get someone to look over your computer and have antivirus installed and, and that kind of thing and you know, being a bit vigilant with the emails that you receive so that, you know, you're not clicking on phishing links and and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, That's cool. Have you done any stuff with social engineering? Because I always love that part.
1: I've done a little bit. So I've kind of dabbled. It's it's a bit of a, um, kind of a pet interest of mine. (laughs) Um, I've done a, a couple of presentations on kind of intro to social engineering, um, it's it's not really used like particularly in Perth it's not you know a lot of penetration tests won't necessarily have uh, a social engineering component beyond you know phishing or maybe someone will rock up to the office and see if they can get inside but they don't kind of do the full red team like <laughs> break in plant software and see what you yeah. can do kinds of things too much um but I always find it really fascinating um and to me, like, I know it's it's a bit fancy, we call it, you know, social engineering, but it's really just manipulating people. Uh, okay. And everyone does it in their jobs most of the time. That's <laughs> what consultants do. That's what advertisers do. Honestly, it's what I do, trying to get people to get on board with the cybersecurity program and start doing things. You know, it's, it's all about influencing. Uh, and then the number one kind of skill that you need is the ability to, read a room or read a person and work out what approach is actually going to work here. Um, You know, some people will respond well if you, you know, put on a bit of airs of authority and just kind of tell them what's happening. Some people will just kind of go, yep, sounds good. Off they go. Other people, not so much. Um, You know, other times it's, you know, Hey, can you help me with something? Let's see what we can do. Uh, It's that kind of camaraderie and, you know, appeal to help that will motivate people. And it's just kind of working that out. So social engineering, often a bit more nefarious if you're trying to do a red team exercise. Um, there's some really cool videos uh, from DEFCON uh, if people want to look it up, where they, they actually have, so in cybersecurity, we often have Capture the Flag competitions which is basically nice let's see who can hack the most stuff to get points um and it's all set up specifically for that no one's actually breaking <laughs> any laws to do it um but it's just a way for people to keep sharp and learn new technologies and new tools uh and at defcon they actually do a social engineering ctf challenge as well nice uh and there's there's some really cool videos of people uh rachel Toback in particular is one who there's some really cool videos of her where she can like she breaks into an account with, with the account holder's permission, um, by like, she calls up the call center and she pretends to be his partner. Uh, and she's got a baby crying in the ba- uh, like a recording of a baby crying yeah. in the background. And, you know, she just starts crying on the phone to be like, oh, we're trying to buy this house and like, we need to settle today. And if I can't sort this out and then like the baby's crying and, you know, obviously the person on the other end of the phone quite naturally, just kind of goes out of their way to do what they can to help her. And she manages to take over this guy's entire account and then add a password on it. So he can't even get into it again. Um, and it's, it's really fun to watch. Like it's a little bit scary. Um, but it's really fun to watch. So yeah, if you look up, I think Rachel Toback, there's some, some really cool videos of her doing her thing.
0: That's very, very cool. But yeah, those Mm. adding those extra stress factors, so you're, you're, you're coming across as frazzled, the person takes on some of that energy as well, and then they want to help you because people just want to help each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and then adding that sense of urgency as well, because if you kind of, if you put people you under a little bit of frame. pressure with urgency, they kind of, you suspend a lot of your logical thinking and you just go into, oh my God, we have to get this done. <laughs> uh, and that's why, you know. 80% of phishing emails that you see, not a real statistic, just one off the top of my head, uh, but a lot of the phishing emails that you see will include something like, you know, if you don't do this within 24 hours, your account will be locked or, you know, you'll be arrested or something. They, they use that sense of urgency to get in your head and make you stop actually thinking about what needs to be done and logically assessing it and instead you just go, oh, my God, I've got to get this done. and. Yeah. You will click that link and that's, it's just the way that our brains are wired. Um, yeah. and it's, it's quite an effective approach.
0: And it's why it works in marketing as well.
1: <sighs> exactly. Yeah. Call now <laughs> in the next 10 minutes or you'll miss out on those steak knives.
0: Exactly. So yeah, it's, it's all those sorts of strategies that are about social and, you know, your psychological manipulation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's a fun field. <laughs>
1: it's fun and a little scary and sometimes it gets a little creepy like i i don't know about other people but when i think about social like i i don't think i could actually be a social engineer and like try to like force my way into a building because i would just feel bad (laughs) (laughs) i just like, I think it's nice that p- people's like response to things is to try to help. And I'm like, yes. I don't want to stamp that. I don't want to be people. evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't want other people to think twice about being nice. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, I do a lot of uh, cybersecurity awareness uh, yeah. work where I am now. Uh, it's one of my, one of the favorite parts of my job. Cause I just get to often be a little bit silly to, to get a message across and, you know, what, what we encourage people to do is yes, definitely help people when they need it. Just take the 30 seconds to stop and think about, you know, who's asking, why are they asking and what are they asking you to do? Take that 30 seconds, ignore (laughs) the sense of urgency. If you take an extra five minutes to validate a request and that stops you losing $5 million, that's five (laughs) minutes well spent, you know? Um, so just kind of, resisting some of those urges and then you know thinking it through before actually being nice because you shouldn't not be
0: nice yes (laughs) it's a tough one because that's not how a lot of people are wired and just it's what it makes them easy marks not because they're stupid but because they're kind
1: yeah exactly and you know it's it's human nature and You know, all of us would fall for a phishing email in the right context. You know, if you're just, if you're under the pump with work and you get an email that you're just checking really quickly, you might be more vulnerable to clicking on it than if, you know, you were having a really chill day and you were sitting there Um, and things like, you know, I, exactly. You can think about it. You're a bit more chill. Uh, And often phishing emails, you know, if you send out a million of them, 900,000 people might look at it and go that's not relevant to me at all, but statistically speaking, you're bound to get someone who it is relevant to. Uh, you know, one of the things that I saw a while ago was, uh, phishing emails that were going out saying, and they were going out in Australia saying, you haven't filed your U S taxes. You need to click this link and fill in this form to actually file your U S taxes. And I I did, I looked at it and I was like, that's dumb. We're in Australia who would fall for that. (laughs) I then learned that U S citizens even when they're outside of the country, have to file their taxes. Yes. And I was like, oh, okay. If I was an American living in Australia and I got that email, it would probably be relevant to me and yes. I might actually click it. You know, i am they're not stupid. It's just the situation has come together, you know, the stars have aligned and that particular email is relevant to them. It looks legit. So they click on it. Yes. It's, it's human nature. It happens. It's not something that we're ever going to 100% stand out.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that they bank on, right? So it's a spray spray and pray. So, you know, they'll send up millions of these because, <clears throat> you know, even if they get one or two hits, that's still a payoff.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't take that much time and energy to send them off. So, you know, for that little amount of energy, if you get anything back, you're kind of the head of the game. Uh, exactly. and then you, you get into more of the targeted, you know, the spear fishing and the whaling attacks where you're targeting, you know, higher ups within an organization. Uh, and that takes a little bit more effort because you have to actually do some research and, you know, work out who does what. Fortunately, LinkedIn is there with a lot of information that you can use yeah. for these kinds of things. Um, and, and those take more time and take more energy, but because they are targeted, you're more likely to actually get a hit. So yeah. it's. You know, the attackers in these situations, they're also running a business and they're doing the same <laughs> yeah. productivity calculations that the rest of us are doing. And it's, yeah. you know, in investment versus return. And invariably they do get returns, um, which is, yeah, we can all kind of do what we can to stop it. But, you know, they're running businesses as well as we are. They have talented people. They have... <laughs> Net networks of people going on, sometimes they even outsource their malware providers to malware as a service kind of networks. So yeah, they're doing all the same things we are as businesses.
0: <laughs> well, it is a pretty lucrative business. I mean, as, as a business yeah. model, it, it's evil, but you know, it, it's still an income and it's still a business that they have found that there's a niche for.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of just an ongoing battle between I guess each side of the conflict and we're all just kind of hoping to stay one step ahead of each other
0: yeah exactly yeah it's very cool and awful at the same time
1: <laughs> yeah like like a lot of things it's i mean <laughs> one of the reasons i like working in cybersecurity is there's a lot of problems to solve uh, yes. and they're quite interesting and a lot of the time it's a bit depressing <laughs> but <laughs> you know it's it's kind of like to me it it's a good thing to do like to make the world that little bit of a better place to make an organization that little bit more secure to me that's a really easy way to to make a positive change in the world and that's one of the things that i enjoy about it uh and it's also really interesting uh kind of problems to solve and one of the things i i quite like getting into is you know why things are happening in a particular way, you know, why is a particular organization being targeted? Who's actually targeting them? That's the stuff that I find really interesting Yeah, Uh, and that hooks directly into like a lot of the stuff that I did at university. I wrote my honours thesis on um, the relationship between human rights violations and uh, incidences of terrorism uh, in particular regions of China Uh, and a lot of what I was digging into was why people do particular things you know what societal factors push them to take particular actions what individual psychological factors push them to take particular actions and that stuff directly translates into cyber security i mean until recently i was working for you know one of the world's largest mining companies uh and working there you know a lot of the stuff that we were looking at from a cyber security angle was to do with International politics politics and, yeah, like regional politics and, you know, you would see government announcements come out about trade wars with China or, you know, China and Russia are fighting over something. Um, And we would see those political changes reflected in the kinds of threats that we were dealing with. Um, So that interrelationship between, you know, what I studied, which to most people is completely different and unrelated, and the work I was actually doing, I actually really enjoyed Um, And it it was also really fun for me because I'd done a lot of study around um, China specifically uh, and the Asia Pacific. A lot of that did feed into what I was doing because, you know, China and Australia, there's such a strong economic relationship there and the politics is always a little bit questionable. (laughs) Uh, And it it will swing back and forth as to who's doing what and who thinks what's a good idea. Uh, And being able to understand those political movements really helped me in my role a lot. And, you know, I kind of got to be like, Oh, Hey, that particular region of China has these particular, you know, ethnic populations. And that means that the government's going to do this. And then that changes their relationship to Russia or Mongolia Um, and being able to draw those relationships. Like I I had a pretty firm grounding in that. Um, So it was really fun to kind of, think about those things in my day-to-day work, uh, which yeah. like, I never thought I would end up kind of circling back to what I studied, but I kind of did. It's just a slightly different angle, but it's all kind of relevant really.
0: Oh, it is. And I mean, you look at all the stuff in you know global politics and all the different governments, the Russia, America stuff, and you know, all of that, you know, it's cybersecurity, but it's also needing to understand about the geopolitical environment and all mm. the kind of, you know, ripple out effects from, you know, any of these decisions that are being made by the various countries and various governments. And yeah, as you said, um, you saw that impact with resources and, you know, it, it's all connected. So having that background, Mm. having an understanding of how that works, even if it's on a shallow level, gives you a better idea of the impact it has on your business and your work. So it's all very Mm. relevant.
1: Yeah. And it's just part of, part of it, I guess, is just understanding what your business actually is. You know, every organization is going to have different things that they need to be concerned about. You know, that's what we were thinking about when I worked for a, a mining company, but you know, I've worked for other organizations, you know, that's, you know, a bank has different concerns. They've got a lot more regulatory requirements that they need to meet. There's much more oversight of what they're doing so they're very concerned about making sure they have paper trails um, and there's a lot of anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist things that they need to you know abide by whereas you know uh, Mm -hmm. a different organization I worked for was in emergency services and they're less concerned about keeping information private and more concerned about making sure that information is available to people in the field when they need it as soon as they need it because a lot of that information isn't actually highly sensitive but it needs to be gotten to immediately because if you can't find a particular address that your emergency vehicle is trying to go to someone might die um so balancing that kind of i guess it's Adjusting the cybersecurity approach based on what your organization actually does. I mean, in cybersecurity we talk about the CIA triad, so that's confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Uh, mm-hmm. And for like most organizations, you're concerned about confidentiality. You want to keep your information private and protected. Uh, but that's not what all organizations need. You know, an emergency services organization. They don't really care so much about keeping their information private. They need it to be available uh, and they need it to have integrity. They need it to be accurate. So, yeah. and then they put confidentiality last. Um, and it's just kind of having that flexibility to understand what the organization needs, what it values, and being able to adjust your approach based on that because it's not, security isn't a one size fits all thing. Yes. Uh, and a lot of people will try to cookie cutter. And say, well, your organization should should do this. I mean, multi factor authentication is the, the classic one. An emergency services organization. There's that's a few not seconds that fly. they can't
0: afford. Yeah.
1: Exactly. If they're out in the middle of nowhere trying to find a fire or someone who's in medical danger, they're not going to pull out their phone and get a six digit code and <laughs> enter it into a console. And to me, that makes perfect sense. That's the risk versus the reward. The, yeah. the balance is, is in the other direction. So yeah, maybe you don't necessarily need MFA there. Um, but on the flip side, that means your accounts could be more likely to be compromised. So you don't want someone being able to get into that information and change it. So just give people read only access. That to me yep. is the mitigating control. Cause yeah, someone can, you know, find some addresses that's probably not super sensitive. As long as they can't change them, it's probably going to be okay. And that it's yep. that, you know, balance of, of everything that you need to consider when you're looking at your security controls.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, it's the whole authentication, authorization, and access control stuff. Just trying to be able to balance that all for your needs.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm evangelizing a little bit, but I have strong opinions on these
0: things. <laughs> Which I think is fair, given this is the field you're in.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's okay to have opinions on like my area of expertise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so let's see. Time-wise, uh, ooh, I'd love to keep talking more about this, but let's move on to those <laughs> other questions. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. So what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work?
1: Oh, interesting. I'm actually a really boring person. I spend a lot of time <laughs> watching Netflix. Um, I think. <laughs> I think if you talk to anyone in tech, they have... They like back up completely non technical career path that they like fantasize <laughs> about. For me, I would like have a little hut in a forest and I would just spend my days baking and making jam. Um, cottage core. So kind of, yes. Yeah, a little bit cottage core. I've recently started learning to knit, uh, which again, a bit cottage core. Um, <laughs> but I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm like two weeks in uh, and it's just like, I'm very easily distracted I'm always fidgeting so having something to do with my hands uh like while I'm doing other stuff is is really good and it's quite like it's quite focused um and repetitive so it's a little bit kind of like meditation uh and I quite like knitted goods so I'm looking forward to like knocking out a cardigan or a scarf or something um so that's that's kind of where I'm at (laughs) yeah
0: yes all good I actually spoke mm. to a surgeon, um, Rhea Liang, and she actually, <laughs> she became Twitter famous for a bit because she was seen crocheting at a medical conference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Just I mean, little. look what happened with Tom Daley at the Olympics. I he know, was knitting right? in, the, in the crowd and it went yeah. viral and he, he knitted that amazing uh, Olympics cardigan, which I love. Yes. Um, and he actually, uh, auctions off a lot of his knitting to raise money for, I think it's a, a brain cancer foundation or some, some form of charity. Um, yeah. so like it, he's not only just like being wholesome and knitting and it's delightful; <laughs> he's also raising money for charitable causes, which I love. So.
0: Exactly. Um, Perfect way to use yeah. your platform.
1: <laughs> exactly. Normally he's diving off them. Now he's just knitting on it. It's great.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Perfect balance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Cool. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. I think actually, uh, so I was always a bit of a nerd. I've read a lot as a kid. Um, Probably the ones that have stuck with me uh, are the, like there was a whole series of books by a writer called Tamora Pierce. Um, And she wrote a lot of like kids fantasy books. uh, And they had a lot of really quite strong female characters um i remember there was like alana the the lioness uh and then there was the one of like the first female squire uh after they let girls in um and there was also, there was a series of books that had four main characters and they had like quite a strong friendship uh, but yeah. i really remember these books because they always had such strong female characters and that wasn't something that i you know saw a lot of in books that i was reading you know i read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi when i was younger, and those are kind of quite male character centric and a lot of the female characters were, you know, supporting characters at best, uh, romantic interests and damsels in distress at worst. Um, yeah. So for me reading those books, it was kind of, whoa, to be able to see like young, young girls who are about my age who were, you know, out there like saving the world and, and doing stuff like that. It was probably one of the reasons I got so into Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> like, as a teenager <laughs> as well. Sure, was like, yeah yeah just you know teenage girls kicking ass it was something that I <laughs> yeah. I I really like it was kind of mind-blowing to see uh and I think you know there's a lot more of that in media now and and I hope that the kids these days are growing up with that a little bit more and and will kind of take that forward as they grow up
0: absolutely yeah tomorrow Fruits is one of my favorites um like I'd always carry one of those books with me whenever I went traveling with family, like it was just the thing that I had to pack. It didn't yeah. matter if I'd read it like six million times. It always came with me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think I've actually got some on the bookshelf behind me. I think there's a couple of tomorrow pierce books. Like I know I'm in my thirties now, but they're still there. Like yes. maybe I'll revisit cool. them.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, you uh, know, I, I saw mm, relatively recently by recently, it could be any time in the last two years. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think it's been greenlit for being made into an actual series.
1: Oh, really? I don't know which
0: part. Yeah. So they're actually doing the Tortell universe. I don't know which books. I haven't Ooh. kept up to date, but I saw an announcement Amazing. saying that they've actually bought the rights to Tortell and they're going to be making stuff out of it. It's like, yes, because everyone's been waiting for her to actually agree to allow someone to have it. And I think they were saying that one of the issues that she had with people wanting to produce it was they might want one book, not make the rest, and then the mm. license will be tied up forever and she couldn't do anything with it. Yeah. So clearly something's changed. And, you know, she's now said, yes, you may do this. So I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know which one's going to Yeah,
1: hopefully. Trying. Yeah, hopefully they do it well. I mean, there was uh, <laughs> a lot of excitement for um, the Wizard of Earthsea series yeah, from yes. Ursula Le Guin being made into a TV show. And then it was, I haven't actually watched it, but I've heard that it's trash um Uh, was that
0: recent because I haven't paid attention to that one
1: it's been in the last couple of years but I know Ursula Le Guin um really had a go at it because they so they completely whitewashed it because uh Ged the main character is you know supposed to be I believe it's based on Native American
0: Mm. um
1: culture a little bit um but yeah he was supposed to be quite dark he like you know there was this whole thing about his race that was actually relevant to his character uh, and they kind of just made him a white boy in the tv series oh, no. and like ev- it was everyone was white whereas i think the the actual earth sea lands were a bit more like the actual original ones where ged was they were quite supposed to be a darker people Uh, and it was the other lands where they had, you know, the blonde haired, blue eyes, pale folks. Um, so to take that land and make it all white and all blonde was, was not great in (laughs) Ursula Le Guin's eyes. So, fair um, enough. yeah, a lot of backlash on that. So I haven't, haven't actually watched it, but
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been kind of hit and miss with a lot of the book-based series lately, but you know, a lot of people seem really happy with Shadow and Bone. That seemed pretty good actually. Um, oh, so
1: I haven't, I haven't read them, but I loved the TV series. It was really Theirs fun. Um pretty good. Um, yeah, and uh, I watched it with a friend of mine who has read the books, uh, and they said it was a really good adaptation. So oh, secondhand good. opinion <laughs> that it was <laughs> like well done.
0: Awesome. That's good to know. But yeah. So hopefully, yeah. do something good with it. Don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yep and <laughs> lastly what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore
1: oh oh. i mean i think the i'll start with the advice that they should ignore i think a lot of people put out this idea that to be in cybersecurity, you have to live and breathe it and you can never think or do anything else uh, and i think that's really bad advice i think pushing people to only think and study and talk about their work is a recipe for burnout. I think there's nothing wrong with going home at the end of the day and turning off your computer and not thinking about cybersecurity. I mean, I have this rule where I don't actually watch documentaries that come out about cybersecurity topics. You know, there's ones that come out about Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that. I don't watch them because that's my personal time. I need to switch off. It's probably just going to make me mad. So yes, there is definitely an element that you need to keep on top of things and you need to keep up to date. And that's a lot of work, but don't have that be the only thing that you do have, have a balance. And don't let anyone tell you that just because you don't go home at night and play hack the box every night that you're not going to make it because that's a, to me is a very unhealthy attitude and you might get into the industry and you might do well, but you are probably going to burn out within five years and you're not going to want to come back. Um, so that's the the advice to avoid. I think for people who do want to get into cybersecurity, I think getting involved in the community is a really good step. You know, there's a lot of people in cybersecurity who we all recognize that there is a bit of a shortage of people in our industry. Uh, and we're always happy to kind of help people get across what they need to to kind of come in. Uh, and I think even if you don't have the traditional background that people might expect if it's something that you're interested in you should definitely you know start poking around and asking people about it because I think we do have a need for different backgrounds and you know different kind of skills to come into the industry to help us build it to where it needs to be you know people with communication skills and you know people skills and you know who can do analytics and you know present Topics and who can do the the business side of things as well. We need a lot more of that to help us get the buy in from the business and to actually kind of accomplish what we're setting out to do to to make our organisation secure. So, yeah, my my advice is to just get involved, get along to some networking events, start like. There's so much on Twitter for cybersecurity. Like, there's this whole bubble. Of cybersecurity, Twitter that you can get into and you can follow. There are there are people who are huge, like celebrities within cybersecurity, <laughs> and you can follow them and interact with them, and they will talk to you, and they're great. You know, there's um, hacks for pancakes does a lot of stuff with operational technology on Twitter. She's got a lot of really cool stuff to say. Uh, there's Tanya Janka who does application security. She, uh, I think her Twitter handle is she hacks purple. She's got a lot of stuff to do. Um, there's all kinds of people who will help you. You can follow Swift on security for really weird security (laughs) memes. Um, there's so much out there and people are more than happy to help. So just start clicking about and, you know, you'll find some stuff and someone will help you with the rest.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just get involved, get, get knowing all the people and the community and yeah, just get into it. Very cool. Good advice.
1: Okay. Well.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Kyra, for speaking with us today. It's been absolutely amazing hearing about your work, your journey, and all the cool stuff that goes on in cybersecurity. So if you would like to know more about what you do, where can they go?
1: Uh, So as I said, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff on Twitter. Um, My Twitter handle is Intrepid Rainbow, if anyone wants to follow me. Uh, I'm happy to send more specific requests. Um, there's uh, training available through ISC squared and SANS organizations. There's also, if you're more interested in penetration testing, there's, you know, hack the box uh, and a lot of CTFs out there. So it depends where you want to go, but if you start clicking around on Twitter, you'll find lists upon lists of people to follow and organizations to follow. And, and I'm happy to kind of point people in the right direction if they want to know it. So.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, so thank you again. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you and I hope you have an amazing day.
1: Thank you, you too.
0: Thanks. Cybersecurity is a fascinating field and I could happily talk about this for hours. So I really appreciate being able to speak with Kyra about her passion for cybersecurity and what that involves. To learn more about Kyra and what we discuss in the show or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at show.com. You can also find out more about Kyra on Twitter at intrepid rainbow the link for which will be in the show notes if you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends you can also support steam powered on patreon and ko-fi under steam powered show the links for which will also be in the show notes thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time